I think that by bootstrapping the company, one of the things and just reinvestment, no? So we haven't taken any money out of the company. So we have just a salary, a regular salary, but we don't take any money out. We reinvest everything. And I think that that gives you a lot of discipline because you think you need to spend whatever you have into the register. So if you don't have any extra money, you cannot do things. But the discipline also gives you a lot of different attitude towards how you spend the money and the capex. And that gave us the opportunity to be extremely prudent in the way that we hire, for example. So we were five people for the first few years because we couldn't afford more people. Then we were 10, then we were 15. Hello, everyone, and welcome to FinTech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. And I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down at the Innovation District Conference in the heart of Mexico City with Jorge Combe, CEO and co-founder of DD360 and DD3 Capital Partners, one of the leading prop tech and real estate financing groups in Mexico and Latin America. Prior to launching the firm, Jorge and his co-founder, Martin Werner, were co-heads of Goldman Sachs Mexico and Goldman Sachs Latin America. They left the firm six years ago and bootstrapped DD3 into a 91 million Series A in 2022. We discuss bootstrapping lessons and benefits and why they set out to build a profitable company from day one, biggest mistakes from his transition from Goldman to building a scrappy startup, how they built a B2B business and then expanded it into a B2C division, the incredible potential and opportunities in Mexico and Latin America, and a lot more. Jorge, thanks for joining FinTech Leaders. How are you doing today? It's a pleasure to be here with you. I think that we have already been talking about this one for a while, so it's, I think it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm, I'm honored to be in your podcast. Absolutely, and, and we are right in the heart of Mexico City. Highly encourage anyone listening to visit and see all the amazing innovation that is happening here and things that I think are going to be exported to the rest of the world. So, Aurea, I, I follow your Twitter account very closely, and not long ago, a few days ago, you were talking about the median age of some countries. And you were talking about, for example, Japan, Germany, UK, and the US. The median age is above 38 years old for the population. But if you look at Brazil, Turkey, India, and Mexico, amongst others, it's actually below 33 years old, so pretty young. What does this mean for this country's economies and also for the innovation and the business community in these countries? I think it's a very good question, just framing it of where we stand at what is the country. I think that in order to innovate and in order to become an entrepreneur, one of the things that you need to be taking a look at and analyzing all the time is what is your target market. So I think that we have the benefit in here that we have a couple positive trends in Mexico. The first of all, it's, it's obviously what you were mentioning. So first of all, the age that we have being under 30 years old 
it's a huge benefit because and why it's a huge benefit because most of the the most productive years of the people the people that are going to be saving the people are going to be forming a household that people are going to be also buying a, a place you're going to be doing more capex so i think that in that sense it's encouraging to be in a country such as mexico so i think that that is the first bonus that we have the demographic bonus and then with i think that we have another bonus in mexico which not a lot of the countries have which is as well the geographic bonus i think that having as neighbor the us we have the best combination. I think that from a demographic as well as from a geographic perspective, we have just the best combination that you can have in order to become an entrepreneur. But that is, is uh, for no use if you don't start innovating, if you don't start doing. So I think that that's why we have been huge proponents that even though the, the everything, all the conditions, once again, from a demographic and also from a geographic perspective is, is, is very beneficial, I think that we need to do more. And I think that the responsibility is not only in the government, I think that there's a lot of people that are blaming either the government because of the public policies that we're seeing that should be this way or the other way. But I think that there's so much that we can do as entrepreneurs and just to finalize and to put, and to put an example, the, the, one of the things that we do is that we finance real estate. We're going to get into that, I guess. But imagine being in Mexico where the population is going to be continuing to grow at, at a very good rate. We have a really expanding middle class and we have also a population that is expanding and compare that with China because everyone is talking about China and investment in China. But what people don't realize is that in China you have right now 1.4 billion people, but then by the end of 2100, the year 2100, people are going to be less than 800 million. So you have a, you're going to be having a population that is going to be shrinking almost in half. In Mexico, I think that we're going to be having exactly the opposite effect. So once that you have as an entrepreneur, put your market size, what is going to be the trends that you're going to be having from a demographic and a geographic perspective, then you need to find what is the right product and then you need to start innovating, adjust iterating and, and trying to do things as fast as you can. Speaking of innovation, tell us about what are you building within all of your companies and maybe tell, take us to the story of DD3, DD360 and the rest. Yeah, so my partner and I, we co-founded DD3. We did it at the end of 2016, at the beginning of 2017. We were two grumpy investment bankers. We both work at, at Goldman Sachs. Probably Martin was more grumpy than I, but, but right now we are even, so, 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 so it doesn't matter that much. Martin was the partner responsible, co-responsible for Latin America. I was at the end the co-head for investment banking for, Latin, for Mexico. And I was leading a couple of the groups. So I was leading, especially real estate for all Latin America. And then what we realized is that what we, that we didn't want to continue working in this type of more traditional trench in, 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 in working. And obviously working at Goldman is a fantastic opportunity just in terms of the relationship, what you learn and what you do. But we didn't want to do that. We were a little bit bored. So we decided that there was an opportunity to do subordinated type of lending. There was a huge opportunity to do mezzanine lending in Mexico. So we began with a fund. And once again, that was just a boring fund. The only thing that we needed that we knew, that we knew how to do was to structure lending and to do different tranches. So that is what we see that there was an opportunity. So we did mezzanine type of lending in Mexico. At, the, at that point in time, I realized that in Chile was a huge preferred capital market. And also in the US, there was a huge mezzanine market, but in Mexico, we only had a couple. So, so you could either go with a super senior with very low leverage, or you could go with equity. And what we realized is that there was an opportunity to do subordinated lending. So we began with that product. Since then, we have funded over 120 projects. I would think that we have, I don't know, 80, 90% market share in the Mexican market in mezzanine lending. 
And we transformed, so I think that that is the other thing. So we transformed in talking about innovation. So we were two, once again, boring bankers, and then we transformed the company into a fintech and a, and a proptech. So we did it on the go. When we were constructing and developing the company, we realized that if we were not incorporating technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and bring on data scientists, that we were not going to be able to grow and to expand at the pace that we wanted to do it. So then we realized at the beginning of the COVID, I think it was at the beginning of 2021, when we realized that there was a huge opportunity to do as well a digital transformation. So back then, at the beginning of 2021, we were 15 bankers. And then we were just a traditional fund, just like any that you would see where GPLP is structured. And back then, what we realized is that by putting technology, we could manage a portfolio that was probably four or five times more larger than what we had. So we brought a CTO. Our CTO came from RapiPay. He, he was a VP of engineering. He was overseeing the development of RapiPay in over seven countries. We brought them with, with us. I, I have no clue how we convinced him because once again, we were a couple grumpy bankers that, that had very good resumes, but very little technology experience. And then since then, we have developed a company. And right now, what we have is a company that where we have 80% of the people that work with us are with a technology background. So these are developers, these are coders, and these are data scientists that we have within the company. And then we only have like 15 to 20 investment professionals within the firm. So Jorge, you started, as you mentioned, as a fund and serving businesses. Your clients were enterprises. But the fintech side that you've launched over the last few years is the opposite. You're serving the consumer. And that's a completely different ballgame. What have you learned since, you know, serving both sides of the market? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that we are still trying to do the transition. It's not an easy transition. And, and just to put it in terms, so what we call whenever we give funding to developers, we call this branch B2B, which is business to business. So what we serve is businesses. And these are construction loans. In construction loan space right now, we have over 12,000, 12 billion pesos in assets under management. That would put us with a 7 to 8% market share in the whole Mexico. We would be the third or fourth largest player in Mexico. The goal that we have is that within the next 18 to 24 months, we need to be the number one. We think that just with technology, we can continue expanding. But that was just, once again, the traditional part that we were doing these B2B construction loans with a lot, a lot with the use of technology as well. So that we like to to think that that is a fintech as well, a different type of fintech because you don't have that many clients. But for example, one of the things that we can do, Miguel, is that if you give us a land plot and a price, we can do an automatic underwriting of the project. So we can take a look at what is the use of that land. We can take a look at what is the title, what is the price, what you can do on that one. And then with the use of machine learning, we can take a look at the assumptions of how much you're going to be selling and what is going to be the base. And with that, we would do a model in less than three seconds. So I don't know, something that took uh, for the developers out of the two months, three months to do it by hand. Right now, we can do it in three seconds. And this is something that is open to the public. So whomever wants to get into our platform, db360.mx, and you can see the way that we do it. But this is in the onboarding. You can take a look at the way that we do this digital onboarding by the use of, of machine learning and models that predict what are going to be the prices and the absorptions. But the big jump, and maybe the one that you're making reference to, is usually the companies and the fintech companies that are in B2B, they stay in B2B. And the fintech companies that are in B2C, they stay in B2C. So last year, we were doing our Series A. We were very late in doing the Series A, but we did it last year. And we were, we were meeting... How big was the Series A? We did. We, we raised $91 million and, you know, as part of our Series A. And, and, and while we were doing our Series A, we met with some investors. And there were a lot of investors that told us, 
hey, you seem to be smart. You seem to be having a very profitable business from a fund perspective and a GPLB structure. But I don't think that you're going to be able to do the jump from B2B and B2C. I think that there's a lot of people that are agnostic that people that have the skill set of B2B can jump into B2C. But, but one of the things that they don't know probably about us, well, maybe after five minutes of talking with me, you can realize, but I'm really stubborn now. So, so whenever I think that there's an opportunity, I think that we just start looking at it, iterating and just trying to see the way that we can find it. So we have been iterating a lot. So we, and in that sense, we launch a couple initiatives. We launch a PropTech initiative on the B2C side. So we try to mimic what Silo has been doing in the States now with, with huge challenges, because in the States you have something that is called an MLS. The MLS would be that everything that is listed for sale or for rent is public. So you can take a look at the public records. In Mexico, what we have is that there's no public records. So the public registry is no public. So I don't know why they have that name. No, so it would be private records instead of public registry, but it's private. So we need to do a lot of iterations and a lot of work with the algorithms in order to predict the prices. So we brought the business model in a sense of what Silo does in the States. And we have right now a prediction model where we have shown the prices in the, in the whole Mexico city. It's for free. We don't want to make any money. We believe that if we construct this environment and this network where people can take a look at what is their home worth. If I have a budget, what can I buy? What can I rent? So what is the best option? So if you can compare prices and everything is transparent, we think that people are going to be making the best decisions for their money. And that is going to be a win-win. So we don't want to make any buck at the beginning, but we think that this is going to be a positive thing in the medium and long term. We have been making huge impact into this. We already launched Mexico City. We're going to be launching Monterrey, Guadalajara, and hopefully we're going to have the whole country in a few months. And this is a big challenge that we have of providing accurate data. And then the second thing that we have is that we believe that the Mexican consumers in terms of mortgages have had a terrible service from the banking sector. We think that we can change that by the use of technology and by the use of different methods. But we think that the customer service and the loans that you get as a mortgage should be way better. The service should be better. In the States and, and in developed countries, you have the two business models. So the people that originate the loans, over 70% of the people that originate the loans, they don't keep the loans. But in the US, you have a system that is very wide and you have 4,000 banks. In Mexico, we have 10 banks that are active or even less than that. And given that you don't have that much competition, we think that the broker and bank model doesn't work. So we do everything integrated. And so we originate and then we keep in our books the loads. Harder, let's talk a bit about entrepreneurship. Something I love about the audience is we have a lot of aspiring founders or current founders actually building in the grind, just like you. You are doing a lot of things. Tell us a bit about your philosophy of time management, project management. How do you allocate your time across all these projects? Yeah, I, I think that we should be iterating as well. Also, I think that at the beginning when we began, when we started DV3, just as a first time founder, you want to do everything. So you want to be control freak. You want to do the presentations. You want to do the Excel. You want to be at every single meeting. And I think that you are a generalist, but I think that as you can start expanding and, and as you start becoming a little bit bigger, it's impossible because otherwise you're going to be controlling the growth of the company. So one of the things that we changed in the last couple of years is that we created a company and there's a book that I, that I read that I love, which is called The Connective Company. And what I learned in this one is that if you want to grow faster, then the model that you should have is that you should have different pods that are autonomous. So one of the things that we did is that we gave a lot of empowerment to the people that are going to be working with us. And, and once again, given that right now we have a four to one ratio between tech and non-tech, 
we, the non-tech, we work as a tech team. So we have everything that a tech company would be working, but for everything. So in terms of Scrum, in terms of Agile, in terms of sprints, all the company works on their sprints and this. But the second thing, which I think that is more important, is that we have empowered a lot of the, of the product managers and product owners that we have within the company. And the philosophy that I would have, Miguel, would be, I think that the higher that you go in the hierarchy, the CEO, the president, you need to set up the, what is going to be the vision of the company, where we want to be in three to five years. And I think that we have extremely clear where we want to be in three to five years. We want to be the largest mortgage company in Mexico in, and by far, being potentially a non-bank. So that is the vision that Martin and I will set. But then you need to bring that one and you build a stir in order to get to this goal. And I think that this is where we get a lot of the people involved. So I work a little bit more on the vision and then revisiting what is going to be the intermediate goals that we're going to be fixing with the people. But then the delivery of each sprint and of each cycle is way more into the CTO, into each of the product managers and into each of the division, division heads. So we try to give them a lot of empowerment and that also brings a lot of talent into the company. Something we haven't talked about is that you have bootstrapped the company into that series A, right? How does bootstrapping a company affect all everything that you're just talking about, right? The mentality, the the day-to-day, the people that you bring on board. So let's talk about that specific part. Yeah, and, and bootstrapping for the people that are not familiar with the term, it means that you don't raise equity. So you try to do it with whatever you have. I think that that was the traditional way of entrepreneurship in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So nobody had money, no? So there was not such a thing as venture capital. Potentially, there were some dreamers and people and, and very little funds in, in Silicon Valley. But I think that for the rest of the world, everything was bootstrapped. Until there was this angel and then the VCs, which put a little bit of distortion within the system, because right now a person only with a PowerPoint and potentially some metrics, they can raise, I don't know, $5 billion with a 20, 25 cap valuation. I think that that didn't exist. Or at least Martin and I, we were extremely naive. We didn't even know that this was possible. No, so if you could have told us that we could raise $5 billion with a PowerPoint, for sure we would have tried to do that. No, but we were very naive. We didn't know that that was possible. So one of the things that we did is that we began with our means. So we didn't have any money. So we found the DD3 with 50,000 pesos. That's all the money that we have put between us into the company. And, but we put a lot of work and really, really long hours. I think that by bootstrapping the company, one of the things and just reinvestment, no? So we haven't taken any money out of the company. So we have just a salary, a regular salary, but we don't take any money out. We reinvest everything. And I think that that gives you a lot of discipline because you think you need to spend whatever you have into the register. So if you don't have any extra money, you cannot do things. But the discipline also gives you a lot of different attitude towards how you spend the money and the capex. And that gave us the opportunity to be extremely prudent in the way that we hire, for example. So we were five people for the first few years because we couldn't afford more people. Then we were 10, then we were 15. So whenever you see all the hype that happened within the venture capital, when, whenever you take a look at some of these valuations where they're going to be losing money for the first 10 years, and then they see, well, yeah, but whenever I reach a level that is, I don't know what, then I'm going to be profitable. We don't understand that. So I think that it was, for us, it was extremely lucky, bootstrapping and how naive we were with entrepreneurship. We have been profitable in, for the company since we founded the company for every single month. So right now we have like 70 or so 80 months that consecutive profitability within the company and just growing and reinvesting. We think that we, that we have put a discipline that we need to reinvest and continue growing the company, and that is the only way that it can survive in the future. That said, you did raise capital. How has that changed the company? And also, what would you pass along 
to entrepreneurs about that fundraising process in arguably already as the market was getting tougher? Yeah. No, so last year we raised this $91 million as you were saying. Once again, this was the first money that we raised at DD360. The, it didn't change that much. So everything went into productive type of capital. So everything went into lending, into expanding. Nothing went into expenses or into CapEx. So most of what we do, for example, one of the things that are curious, we haven't done any marketing. So we just hired a marketing director. And the first time, so the first time that he came, he told me, hey, I'm going to be developing this type of marketing plan. I told him, well, yeah, but you need to do it with no money. What, what, what do you mean by no money? Yeah, no money. So we need to be creative, no? So we need to do podcasts. We need to do t-shirts. We need to do beers. We need to do all sorts of things. But at the end, what we want to create and what we think that we can create, we need to create a community. We think that in the future, the business, you're going to be doing business, especially with the people that you think that you belong, with the people that you think that are trying to benefit the way that you act, the way that you build. And we think that building a community doesn't involve, it involves a lot of work, a lot of creativity, but it doesn't involve a lot of money. And I think that that is one of the things that most of the of entrepreneurs miss right now, because they think that pouring money into CapEx and then into CAC or customer acquisition cost is going to bring them faster into the goal. But most of this money is suspense. It's money you're never going to be finding and never going to be seeing again. So I think that once again, we raised $91 million, but I think that we continue having the discipline. We continue having the DNA of a bootstrap company. But what it gives you is, and I make usually the analogy of, of a car driver, no? So whenever you take a look at what happened with Verstappen, I don't know, he began as a car driver, then we went to Formula 2, then we went to Formula 1. But there's a process. I think that a little bit of, the, of, of some of the things that happen right now and some of the negative effects that he can have, you can have the best driver in the world, but if you put him in a Formula 1 in the version the first time that he's going to be driving, most likely he's going to crash. Nope. If you have 10 drivers, then if one of them survives, then you make your 10x. So I think that that is a little bit the mentality of some of the VCs. But it's not the same whenever it's your only son. And I think that that is what we had. No, So we are the only child. We don't have any other car. We cannot crash this car. So that's why we continue driving a little bit faster with the money. But we continue being very prudent and just putting the lights whenever we're going to be good, make to the right and just driving like an old lady. You've talked about a, a lot of good decisions, but let's hear about the challenges. In what areas of the companies have you made your biggest mistakes? Maybe share some of those. Yeah. No, I think that the biggest mistake that we, and it's not a mistake. I think that it's a learning process, no? Because if, if, if it would have been the other way around, probably we would, have, we would have already crashed. But I think the biggest mistake that we did is that we brought technology within the company really, really late. So we found the DD3 2017, and we didn't bring a CTO until 20, at the end of 2020. So I think that we have three years that were, in a sense, lost years. But on the other hand, it gives us a lot of experience into how to manage a loan book, how to manage a loan, how to, man how to, how to have the relationship with the developers, with the clients, with everything. So I think that if I would do it again, Certainly, I would have a co-founder that would be a technical uh, co-founder. So probably this, the curve and the learning curve is not going to be as steep as what we found. But I think that that is one of the potentially the biggest one that we have learned through, through, through trial and error. So you and Martin left a, a very big, stringent culture at Goldman, amazing school. Right. What did you, you have to all learn? I guess a lot of things. Right. You you didn't have a an administrative assistant, I imagine, and you know so many other things. So talk about that transition. Yeah, Martin and I we, we used to joke 
when they were, they told us, I don't know, the first six months when we left Goldman, they told us, what is the thing that you miss the most? And then we told them the corporate card. Well, because, because you can travel, you can do whatever you want and you don't, you, you don't care, the, the, basically, no. But, but I think that it's a fantastic culture. I think that working at Goldman, it puts you in a mentality and a way of thinking that is just probably the best school. I think that it's difficult to try to replicate what you can learn in a challenging environment, whatever you work with superb and with people that are, everyone is an A type of people within Goldman. So I think that they brought us just a type of school that is overachievers. Everyone is trying to beat the other one. So I think that is fantastic. But on the other hand, you also have a lot of bias that you need to unlearn, just like you were mentioning. So one of them and the biggest one probably is the use of technology. So we didn't have this technology background at Goldman, you didn't do anything. So that is the other thing. And then the second thing, which is very, very important, which for me, it has been a little bit easier just because of my nature, but has to do with doing everything. So I think that just becoming a journalist, because we didn't have any money to hire more people. I think that that was the other thing that we need to relearn how to do. I can not build a model when I was at Goldman, probably for seven years, eight years. No, I would have a intern, analyst, associate, the VP, a director. I would have five people that would be reporting below me that would be taking a look at the models. If I needed a presentation at two o'clock in the morning, they would send it to me. One of them would become rushing. So I think that you become pampered and accustomed to this type of things. So that is on the negative side, I would think, but, but it's fun. It's very different whenever you're relearning to work from scratch. And I think that the big difference is when you're doing it for our, for your own. So for example, the first deal that we did, Martin and I, when we were not at Goldland, we sold a land plot in Aguascalientes. Aguascalientes for the people that are not in Mexico is just a regular, a mid-sized to small size state. Martin and I, we have never been in Aguascalientes. We never traveled to Aguascalientes, but we had a connection. So we sold that. I think that we made, I don't know, like a hundred of the traditional fee that we would be making at Goldman. But we had a celebration, just like a closing dinner, like if we had closed the biggest deal of the year, no? But I think that that is one of the things that are fabulous. Whenever you start from scratch, it feels so different whenever it's your name, whenever it's your company, whenever it's your baby, that whenever you're working for someone else. So that is the other thing that, that, that I think that we relearn really, really quickly of building something that's gonna be your own and also building something that can stay here and that is gonna be durable for the next three, five, 10, 100 years. We were just listening to a panel before our conversation and, and it was about AI and about all these recent tools that, that have become available to the public, namely ChatGPT. Are you guys using these tools at the company already? Yeah, I think that my CTO is going to be making guys at me because I just told him, hey, Patch, what, what, what are we doing? We need to have a co-pilot. We need to have top nine was another of the things that assistance that I saw. And I, and I told him, hey, we need to tell our, all the people, all the developers that are working with us, just how much lines, how much, how much coding they're doing. Yesterday, we were using it just for legal purposes. So we were with our head of legal as well taking a look at how we can improve. I think that definitely we're going to be using it for everything. I think that this is going to be a game changer for many, many things. And I think that there's principally a couple or three different things that we're going to be using it. The first one is just going to be improving the life of the developers, because I think that the developer and by developers, I think that the, the coders so and the technical team that we have, we think that there's a lot of manual work that now is going to be outsourced to put in a word by, by this type of pilot or any other assistance or AI assistance. So that is the first thing. We need to give them a lot of the information. We have Ricardo Cayetano. He's the one that is right now leading the efforts, but he's the one that is mentoring 100% of the people that are working with us. We need to bring them to a different to a different level. We think that we need to provide them with the tools, but it's not only providing with the tools. I think that a lot of people are scared of what is this technology? Or is it going to be replacing me? And we need to show them 
how this technology is not going to be replacing them, but it's going to be enhancing the way that they can do the business and the, and the way that they can do their work. So that is the first thing. The second thing that we're doing is for everything that has to do with managerial tasks. No, So for example, like I was making reference to a legal contract, that is something that is going to be easy to, to see. So you need to review it. So our chief of legal still needs to review it, but at least a bulk of the work is already going to be done. But I think that the one that I'm most enthusiastic and, and I think that this is going to be the biggest impact is going to be with the generative AI. And for generative AI, in terms of images, and I have been playing a lot in mid-journey, like we were mentioning, but for example, I did the renders for a 10-story building, which I asked for, what do you do it with three famous architects? And then I got just some from by, by using a, a different prompt, but just changing the name of the architect. And I got some amazing results. I think that's impressive what we got. How do I envision that we're going to be using it? Remember that what we do is that we finance developers. So right now the onboarding, you put a land plot on the price. And like I mentioned, we have a project, but imagine that you only not, that you not only have a project, but you can have the renders, interior design, because one of the things that we're training our, our models right now is that they can get into all of the, all of the websites and, and all of the marketplaces. We can see what is the, the residential construction that is selling the best. So we see what is the, the one that has the best acceptance for each specific neighborhood. And once that we can identify, for example, classic architecture, we can suggest to the developer and tell them, hey, we think that you can have an absorption instead of having, I don't know, 1.7 apartments per month, you can have 2.1. If you switch to an architecture that is going to be classical, by the way, you here have the designs, the first renders, and you have the layouts of the, of the interior and the design. So that is something that we're really working on. We think that we're going to be having something within the next three to six months where we're going to be providing this information. Obviously, you still need architects. You still need people that are going to be supervising the construction of the project. But at least whenever there's a developer that they see that you understand not only the financials, but you also are providing this type of value added by no charge. We don't want to charge anything. We're not consultants. We think that if we do this well, you are making, you're going to be making more money. And that is the only thing that we want. We want them to make more money so that way they can pay us and we can, and we can sleep. If, if you like are, <laughs> if we babies wake up a lot. <laughs> so if you are going to be reinforcing the most popular projects, aren't you afraid that everything's going to start to look alike? That is, obviously there's a risk, but residential, I think that if everything looks alike, then the building that doesn't look alike is going to start having better absorption because it's going to be the different one. And then it's going to have a self-adjustment. So I think that in the short term, yeah, you can have a herd mentality that everyone is going to be having the same type of buildings, but those are, then that is going to be boring. No, so, But I think that as soon as everyone has a boring type of architecture and building, then the one that is going to be incorporating the Saha Hadid or no type of architecture that is going to be more, a little bit more appealing to the people, then that one is going to have the absorption of five. And then everyone is going to be to Saha Hadid. So we're going to be having waste. Let's go into a rapid fire round of three or four questions and yeah, you can take 30 seconds for each answer. So for the office, remote or in-person culture? I think that for anything that has to be with creative tasks or things that need to be discussed within a group, I, I, I prefer by far just having an in-person type of, of office. I think that anything that has to be tasks or that can be in, in, in putting different numbers, I think that, for example, a lot of the a lot of the people that work in our tech department, they are they work from abroad. So we have people from Colombia, we have people from Argentina, Venezuela, Honduras. So I think that those type of tasks are better by remote. I think that anything that involves thinking as a group and coming with a better solution and a group thinking, I think that is where we're way better to have it in in person. I always go to the office. 
What are you not good at and how do you try to solve for it? I'm terrible in process and, and um, anything that has to do with bureaucracy, I think that I'm just the worst. My CFO is laughing, no, because whatever he brings just any type of paper, oh no, Jose Carlos, why this? We don't need any paperwork. No, yeah, we do need it. We, we need the audited financial. So I think that I'm really, really bad at that. I think that, that I, I, I enjoy a lot just in, in bringing up ideas, being creative. So you need to compensate with people that are going to be exactly the opposite of you. So I think that by having a team that is very strong in terms of processes and in terms of having everything, having everything go there, I think that that is the best that you can do. Here in real estate, if you had to pick one segment in real estate to stay for your, the rest of your career between residential, commercial, or industrial real estate, which one would you pick? I would go definitely with residential and obviously I have a bias, no? That is what we do. But let me put it just in perspective. I think that in residential, we do know that people will need to live somewhere. Probably it can be remote, probably can people can share a room, it can be co-living, it can be membership, it can be whatever. But I think that people need to live somewhere. Commercial, I don't know. I think that people would need to shop somewhere. Yeah. Will people like to go out to a shopping mall in 20 years? I don't know. People would like to go to an office in 20 years? I don't know. In manufacturing, I think that we can have a problem as well. I do, not for big item manufacturing or for heavy manufacturing, but I think there's a lot of things that are going to be coming into automatic. So, for example, this T-shirt, potentially in 20 years or 30 years, there's going to be a machine at my home where I can produce this T-shirt for a fraction of the cost. Or there's going to be a mini machine that is going to be producing the food, the, the clothes, the everything. I think that the only one that is, that is irreplaceable is going to be residential. I think that for the other ones, I could think that there's innovations within the next 10 to 20 years that could disrupt the industries as a whole. Bootstrap companies or VC-backed companies? That's a good question. I think that uh, I have a bias as well, though, because I did the bootstrap companies. I love bootstrap founders. I think that they have a DNA that is of resilience, that is of fighting, that is of coming from behind. And I, I prefer bootstrap founders. And if it is going to be VC-funded, I think that you should dilute and brace as little as possible. I think that too much money is going to, for sure, going to be ruining the company and putting a curse into the company. I think that the less that you can raise, the better. The more ownership you have, the more stake you have, and then also the more discipline that you need to have. So it could be a bootstrap, or if it is not possible, then PC, but raising the less that you can. So what has you the most excited about future of Mexico and the future of Latin America? I think that one of the things that has me extremely excited in Mexico is an, an overall in Latin America. I think that then whenever you talk with the companies and whenever you just walk in the streets, like for example, here in Roma Norte that we're talking, you see a different Mexico. You see a Mexico that has a different vibe. You see a Mexico where everyone wants to become an entrepreneur, where the people are aspiring to, to launch something, to do something, to be the next unicorn or big company. I think that this didn't happen five or 10 years ago. And, and part of that has to be with the fact that capital was not available for Latin America. So for a long, long time, it wasn't available. So just like putting resources into the whole region, it has changed the mindset. So right now it's aspirational to become an entrepreneur where before it was aspirational to become a Goldman banker. No, I am just, just to, to add it on this one, when I was still working at Goldman, you couldn't start feeling this type of change. No. So I did a, I participated in a panel of the business school. It was a recruiting panel. It was me. I was the, the managing director of Goldman. I think there was someone from Uber and there was another guy and guy that was an entrepreneur. 
Then at the beginning, at the end of the panel, I thought I'm going to be overwhelmed. There's going to be like 30 people that are going to be jumping on top of me just to see how they can apply to Goldman and work for Goldman. There was no one. There was one guy and there was just telling me, hey, how is to work at Goldman? And then the lady from Uber got a bunch of the people talking to her. So you could start seeing this nowhere. Big banks, foreign business are losing a lot of the gold that they had. And then you can you can feel this hype. I think that that is encouraging. We're going to be seeing a lot of new innovations, a lot of people launching new things into the future. And I think that that is encouraging. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Jorge from DD3. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. It helps and means a lot. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Miguel Armasa.